AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. My name is Ed Scotus. I'm an instructor with the SANS Institute. I also founded a company called CounterHack, which does penetration testing. I love the show. Uh, I'm a, a big fan. I'm also friends with a lot of the people who are on the ThreatTrack show. One of the big things that the bad guys want to do is evade detection, especially of endpoint security suites. So fileless malware is designed to not touch the file system. That's what the endpoint security suites are looking at. So it's a lot more evasive. Anytime I hear about another fireless malware, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I get interested, I also get a little bit worried. Hey, Mike, so uh, I hear we've got a, a, a new story that I think that you were following, something to do with uh, fileless malware. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, uh, so right now for the last several weeks, uh, there's been kind of an uptick in a fileless malware campaign. It's been targeting banks and other kinds of enterprise organizations. Uh, with a fairly sophisticated malware package that is injecting um, interpreter code directly into the memory of running processes uh, rather than downloading some sort of an exploit um, or other payload to disk where endpoint security controls may have a, a better chance of detecting it. Um, once that injection occurs, then they're relying on native capability inside the machine, things like NetSH and PowerShell capabilities, to then, um, you know, establish proxy communications back out to command and control networks. That's interesting. It's funny you said fileless because typically the last time I heard of like a fileless malware was something like Powellix, which is also technically fileless, like it writes to the registry instead of a file on disk. But I mean, the registry is a file. We know that. So, so this is this is truly never touches disk fileless malware. There are some aspects of it that are are fileless, but when it like when it goes to uh, establish persistence. That's when it starts, you know, touching things in the registry uh, to set up persistence. But for just plain execution, it's injecting straight into memory, which can really complicate, um, you know, doing any kind of forensics or things like that. One of the things I find interesting in a story like this is um, it calls on red, red teamers and penetration testers to up their game. That's true. Right? I mean, our job is to model what real-world attacks are doing. And if we're not doing that, we're, we're you know, missing the, the boat. Um, that's why it's kind of cool that there are some capabilities in some of the free open source tools to do things that are relatively fileless or at least very focused on injecting code, especially interpreter code, directly into memory. Um, just last month, a new version of the Veil framework came out, and uh, it has all kinds of wonderful tricks for trying to have as light a touch as possible in the file system uh, to try to mimic this kind of attack. What are some mitigating factors? So, what you, what can you what could someone do that's trying to find this on their network? Well, you got to push on your your endpoint security suite vendors. Um, given that they're so focused on the file system, because performance there is fairly easy to manage, if you're starting to comb through memory, performance is a disaster but it's behavior-based. It's what is this thing doing to reach out to its command and control, um, what kinds of things, even though itself it's fileless, it's accessing things in the file system. Is it going after the certificate store? Is it doing keystroke logging? And again, there's, there's really no silver bullet, right? I mean, that's, that's the one layer, but really, you know, it gets back to some basic blocking and tackling about patching your software, your applications and your systems in a timely manner and making sure that you have those types of uh, detective and preventative controls kind of layered from the perimeter all the way into the endpoint. Well, in this case, I think we're a little bit lucky that they're using PowerShell. If PowerShell was running it as, as anybody but, 
you know, an admin user on that box, that should be something that tips off the AV, that something is, is funny. And you can restrict PowerShell. Right, you can restrict PowerShell, and PowerShell 5 has great logging uh, capabilities. You have to turn them on, but the logging is, is fantastic in PowerShell 5. What was the actual uh, persistence me method for this one? So, uh, you know, if you reboot the machine, do you... Is it gone, or are you still getting something back? They're using the registry to store the persistence data. Um, so when the machine gets restarted, that's where the persistence comes from. Gotcha. So, hey, that's a hook right. for us to right. look for, and that's yep. great. So, I mean, this, this one's tough. In this particular case, looking for those registry entries that are created could give you an indication that you've got a compromise box. This is something you have to be worried about. It's not just one or two families. It's, you know, it's growing. So make sure that your antivirus is capable of detecting this sort of stuff, looking in memory and not just on disk. We have to model those kinds of activities in our penetration test and red teaming. If we're not doing what the real world bad guys do, we as penetration testers are not providing the value that, uh, that we need to. So there was an interesting piece of research that came out about six months ago uh, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and it addressed a, a vital problem, and that is how do you retain how do you inspire cyber ninjas? That's what they called them. But these are like the best of the best technical workers on staff. One of the biggest problems we face in the information security industry today is a shortage of really good workers. What happens is the really good cybersecurity workers end up jumping from company to company to company. This paper came out uh, from CSIS and it had a lot of interesting conclusions. They, they interviewed over 300 people to ask them what motivates and inspires them. Have, have you seen the paper? I read through it uh, a little while ago and uh, I thought there was some really interesting things in there. You know, as a person who's, who's doing some of the hiring, um, retaining good talent is a, is a serious problem, I know. The interesting things were that the, the main motivators for hiring and retaining these people were not in the amount of money you're paying them. It's not just a bidding war, an arms race of, of job perks. Instead, it's meaning in the job and, and helping people build a, a great working environment. You know, you'd think, well, people are inspired by, you know, money and, and, and flexibility in, the, in uh, their hours and such. And, well, I mean, that was an issue. It certainly wasn't at the top. And the thing that they found uh, really at the top was people want to have the respect of their highly technical coworkers. So fostering an environment where people interact with their peers whom they know and really respect and kind of get that feedback of respect from them. Another really high important thing, higher than salary or anything like that, was working on interesting work. They want to do really interesting and cool things um, and not just kind of rote things. From my perspective, the sorts of motivators that they mentioned in this report, I actually agree with a lot of them. So working on interesting work is absolutely something that draws me to a job and keeps me there. The one interesting thing that I saw there was, was also about training. So mm -hmm. you know, companies that, that invest in their employees and train them, they were more, more than likely to stay in that space. Training um, was one of the big things that, I mean, you know, that report really highlighted the importance of that. And I think it's because these highly technical workers want to maintain their edge and get even better, right. which is, I think, right. quite a respect. If they, want to, if they want to keep their ninja title. Right. They're the folks who really want to keep that technical side. They want to hold on to it. That's the thing that they love. That's why they come to work. And you could also see, I mean, you know, the employee saying, I'm investing in my skill set, which benefits my employer. Yep. Is my employer willing to invest in my skill set as well to the level that I am? And, and there was another really really interesting finding, kind of differentiating these sort of cyber ninjas from the you know, 
just sort of regular rank and file employees. Is there a track so that I can be successful in the organization where I don't have to go into management? Yeah. Yeah. That's because a lot of people don't want to do that. Now, some people do, and that's great and all good. One thing that they wanted to be able to see in a company that they worked for was the, the ability to move up in the ranks without moving into the, the dreaded M word, the management, you know, management space. It allows for them to stay technical, but still to advance in the organization. This has been something that, that plagues a lot of you know, big companies. It's been an issue in the military. When we work with cyber warriors in the military, you know, some of them just want to do amazing cyber work and then the bane of their existence happens. Uh, they get promoted and now suddenly have to manage other people to do the work that they wanted to do. I can see it being a problem because as somebody you know, is now proving themselves, the first thing that usually happens is, oh, let's move that person, start moving that person up the chain. Yeah. Away from their area of excellence. Exactly, right. exactly. And so what they, yeah, exactly. So they start moving farther and farther away from the technical aspects of it, which is what kept them in the job in the first place, kept them, right, actively engaged. And I think, you know, the, the guys on my team, I think I've always tried to express that, like, don't follow my track. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, when I look at myself and my, my own career, I look at that moment when I made that transition from the technical side over to the management side and knowing in my mind that, you know, hey, when I make this switch, it's going to take a lot more effort to keep that technical side. I think a thoughtful manager understands that, right. looks at it and tries to structure an environment where the employees, some of them want to go into management, hey, that's great, yeah. we'll help groom you for that. For those that don't, you still have a good development plan for those people. All right, I still do try to write some code myself, but the fact is all these guys on my team from a technical perspective are better at what they're doing than I am. I don't like that, but it is kind of the way it is, you know? Yeah, I try to I try to keep my skills up to date by just associating myself. I just try to stay close to Matt. There, and whatever whatever <laughs> leaks out of his ears, that's what I pick up. <laughs> and I do think a good boss, I mean I hope a good boss can kind of cross-pollinate because Matt's yeah. so busy doing what Matt's amazing at, but might not have a chance to talk to other folks on the team that are working on very different things. Yeah. But if the boss can cross-pollinate those ideas, at least it makes me feel like I'm doing some sort of value add. Right? And I'll, I'll tell you the interesting problems aspect of it you mentioned, you know, give me the opportunity to try out a new area that I haven't learned a lot about and I could become an expert in and be proud of that. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. if you if you can spare me, give me another stint in like some other area of the company that needs somebody who gets this stuff. Right. And I think it's a good dialogue for for people to have with their bosses. It's also good for the boss to really, I mean, think deeply and carefully of this. And the the paper from CSIS, it's it's freely available. It's a good piece of research. And it can be used as a starting point to, to have these conversations, to start thinking through it. And it's a quick read. It's 33, 34 yeah. pages yeah. long. It's, uh, it's worthwhile to contemplate. Yeah, I completely agree. Cool. Yeah. So I'm going to go read it so I can see how Manny's going to motivate me in the future. There you <laughs> go. <right. laughs> awesome. I think we live in the golden age of IoT right now. I mean, new technologies are getting deployed really fast. They're exciting. They do cool things. They interact with the outside world. But the security really is messed up in a lot of these IoT products, and that's a problem. This Internet of Things, IoT, I mean, it's, it's big time now. But I saw an article that came out about a year ago, and it was by Bruce Schneier. And uh, in this article, uh, Bruce says, you know, what we're really building is a planet-sized robot. 
and uh, its security is frankly a disaster. You can say that the, the internet is the, the world's largest network. By plugging in the IoT, you have the world's largest robot because it interacts with physical objects. I'm hesitant to, to say that it's a robot because to me a robot has a single brain and a single command and control. I mean, a lot of this stuff is controlled via unauthenticated protocols, clear text, HTTP, Telnet, and more. And we've seen the rise of some of uh, these attacks against this, like the Mirai worm uh, last year. Right now, we're in a stage where, you know, it's, they seem kind of cute and cuddly, but I think what we're, what we're moving up to now is, you know, they're not going to be so cute and cuddly anymore they're gonna have some teeth, and I think we're starting to see some of those teeth today. We keep an eye on the IoT, the common botnets. Uh, Mirai, obviously, is one of the biggest ones. I think Hajime is another that we've had a little more time to look into. There's a handful of other ones that are really causing trouble, especially in the DDoS space, where mm -hmm. these things, you know, they'll get compromised, and then each little one will be able to send a certain amount of bandwidth, but you, know, you get enough of them, and you can have enough bandwidth to take down a major site. I think at, th at this point that the threat is really still to the internet at large and not to the individual users. Which is significant. True. And I, I do think it's going to kind of evolve. You see this rise of what they're calling the IIoT, the industrial internet of things. Okay. So it's essentially SCADA devices, industrial control systems with kind of an IoT front end or something sitting next to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when things get really scary because you're dealing with much higher voltages, a lot more energy a lot more physical motion that could really hurt people mm -hmm. in factories and such. IIoT, I think, is something to definitely keep an eye on. If we're kind of speaking you know, from a forward-looking perspective, you know, I think that you know, the catastrophic scenarios, you know, such as those that you described you know, in the Internet, industrial IoT, you know, big, big regionally impacting things, you know, they are, are certainly top of mind. But there are some far more insidious things that can be done. You know, those are some of the things that you know, are less focused on because they're kind of harder to, to quantify and, and kind of connect those dots from the, the technical to the social to the, you know, socioeconomic kind of space. Uh, but I think that there's some definite things there that we're going to need to keep an eye on as, an, as a society. We know that there are problems. We know that there are security issues that need to be fixed. Otherwise, you may actually have, you know, a wide dispersed botnet capable of physically interacting with the world. And probably in malicious ways. We've been doing a lot of penetration tests of Internet of Things devices, and most of the time the security is very lacking. It's like the 1990s all over again. Mm -hmm. No address space layout randomization in the very you know, small, slimmed down uh, Linuxes that they have, uh, using tools like uh, Binwalk, very easy to go through the file system and pull out all kinds of stuff, command injection vulnerabilities. It's it's, I gotta say, fun and exciting to find these <laughs> vulnerabilities, but it also is a little bit sad. I mean, we know how to fix these things. The problem is these devices are so cheap. They're, they're OSs, and frankly, the hardware underneath them don't have a lot of spare CPU cycles to, to do reasonable security. Of course, Moore's Law is helping with that over time. Right. There is a constant uh, pressure for IoT developers to bring their products to market very quickly with the least amount of cost. And I think that's, that's common in software development as a whole. In IoT, I've heard it's even more of a pressure. Uh, but that means you cut costs in areas like security and reliability. From a security standpoint, that's difficult and frustrating because you need to have certain security checks in place so that these devices don't get broken into and remotely controlled by somebody else for nefarious purposes. The problem is, is that, you know, because they're so low cost, the amount of money that they have in the budget to create these things to go towards security, I think, is diminished. And that's the problem I think we're seeing. We're seeing a ramp up, right? And so hopefully what we're seeing now is that ramp up of 
everything's really fun, you know, and right now there hasn't been anything really, really serious that we've had to pay attention to. But I'm hoping that you get to a point where at, at some point, somewhere along the line, somebody stops and says, okay, look, we've gone far enough with this, with this IoT stuff. We, there has to be some sort of formal policy on how you actually implement these things on the internet. I think the greater security community is now really starting to understand what it means for these devices to be out there and to start looking for those vulnerabilities. We do have people who, who go out and find bugs in these devices, and I think that needs to sort of probably be ramped up. I'm kind of encouraging people to start working with IoT devices. I know Matt's been doing some stuff. I've been doing a lot. A lot of folks on my team have been, because um, it's fun. I mean, th there is that. But it's also very cool. We want to learn how these technologies work, how we can control them. I've been doing a lot of development in Python and Bash and Node just to see how I can harness these things. And of course, that's how a bad guy might be able to harness them as well. But I've learned so much in the last 18 months, and I'm kind of pushing my friends and colleagues, start getting this technology. You don't have to integrate it into your life or office like I have, but at least set it up in the lab like Matt's been doing so you can kind of understand it at a deep enough level. Exciting times? Oh. <laughs> The thing that stands out the most to me in this story is um, how the technology is advancing very quickly. We're deploying this stuff faster than most people are really thinking about it. And we don't really have a good plan to secure it over the long term. In other words, we're flying by the seat of our pants and we're hoping that we'll be able to clean up the security factors here five or ten years down the road. And I'm not sure that's the case. It was cool to have Ed Scotus there for the internet weather. He seemed very excited about it, which is cool. You see a, a, a kindred spirit of, of technical interests, and then when they get excited about something, it's also kind of exciting. I found the internet weather report really interesting. Just the fact that AT&T has the ability to pull this massive amount of data, do detailed analysis to be able to interpret things that have been happening over the last couple of weeks and explain them and also to be able to find some brand new things that uh, could be a problem down the road. Uh, it's an amazing resource and really useful. So we're taking a look at the internet weather for this week. Uh, there's really not that many surprises. I feel like that's been a refrain for the last month of, you know, there's stuff that's going on, but in terms of the changes of, of what's being scanned and what's not, it seems to be fairly static. Um, that said, we'll still go into it. Uh, so port 23 TCP is Telnet, which I figure all of us on the show are aware of at this point. This is a very popular way for breaking into IoT devices, other servers as well, but it seems like IoT devices in particular are leaving this open with default credentials. Um, very well-known bots like Mirai are using that list to break in. Just try a bunch of combinations and you're probably going to get in. 5358 is in second place. Uh, that one, I believe, last week John Hogaboon decided was part of the Hajime botnet, which is another IoT bot. Um, and that's um, pretty interesting. Um, 22 TCP is SSH, which we'll also get into in a little bit. And then 7547 is in fourth place, and that's related to that TR064069 bug that we've been talking about for a while. The one device that we know was vulnerable to it was running TR064 and 069 on the same port, one of which is a external management protocol, one of which is an internal management protocol. And the bug in that case was uh, command injection through like an NTP configuration message which was pretty interesting. Taking a look at the most sources probing, actually a lot of those are still in that same list. 23TCP is still king. 7547 is still up there, although I think that one is starting to, to sort of fall off. Uh, 5358 we also mentioned. We skipped the ICMP and 22 is number four there. So 
both the most sources probing and the most probed ports are dominated by these same four. Some of the ports seem to be dropping off a little bit, which is sort of interesting. I'm not sure what's causing it. I'd like to understand it better, but these are large botnets. There's no obvious reason why they should be letting up at all unless someone is planning to pull them back and retask them for some other scanning. So Telnet, um, as you can see, has had some serious ups and downs. It seems to be in a sort of a lull at this point, tapering off over the last month or so, which is kind of interesting. I, I, I've been more aware of the Mirai stuff through our own analysis for the last week or so. Some, some things have kicked back in that we're aware of. It looks like the scanning is going down, but from my perspective, the attacks are a little more frequent, at least from our own instrumentation. So that's kind of interesting to note. It is amazing that Telnet remains an issue, I mean, here in 2017. I wonder if the original creators of Telnet would have ever suspected it'd be the number one most attacked port on the internet in 2017. Uh, I wonder, yeah. And beyond. And you think and that, beyond, well, forever. And someone might have said at some point, well, we now we've got SSH, so no one's ever gonna need to use Telnet ever again. Well, now Telnet and SSH are in the top of those ports too, but you know. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um. <laughs> the ports in particular that kind of interested me are, are 23, which is associated with Telnet, and 22, which is associated with SSH. The thing that's so powerful about those ports is their remote login. You get a shell on a target machine, which gives you fine-grained control of that system. It might initially be with very limited privileges, but with a local privilege escalation attack, suddenly you're completely controlling that box. SSH, an old chestnut. So in the last 60 days, we've seen a significant uptick over the, the larger span. Um, mostly, you know, it's, it's kind of a volatile, and there's a lot of spikes in there, but we seem to be in the middle of another uptick. SSH is, I consider it a replacement to Telnet, although some devices, I guess, still run both. It's a sort of a weird True. thing. Some IoT devices have both. And, uh, you know, SSH, incredibly useful. I mean, I use it to manage a lot of my stuff. We use it to carry other TCP services in a secure fashion. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things that I like to do when I have an SSH uh, daemon is to avoid all this by just bumping it to a different port. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of security through obscurity. It's not greatly improving your security. If they're out to get you, they'll just do a port scan and find that SSH is listening on like 6822. Right. So it's not bumping your security, but it's keeping your logs pure. I usually will bump it to some port that ends in 22, so I can even myself remember mm -hmm. that it's TCP 22. Yep. Yeah. And um, I think most of these attacks are, are brute force password guessing, yeah. which of course you can, you can fix in all sorts of ways, um, but using key authentication instead of passwords, if you're going to expose SSH to the internet, absolutely. Yeah. That's what you should be doing. That's huge, very important. 7547, we had a huge spike back in the end of last year when the bug first came out, had a lull, and then at some point we've got this base noise floor, I want to say of about 40,000 scan sources that continue to be there. And there's a little bit of a cycling within that of the number of sources scanning. But it seems fairly consistent. Although, from my perspective, the 7547 bug, there's not much, there's not a large population that's actually vulnerable from as far as I know. I've seen devices that are affected by the attack, that they go into a weird state when you send them this mal malformed NTP configuration message. But as for them actually being susceptible for command injection, I think it was only a small subset of those. So it's, it's, to me, it's strange that this continues. I figured they might have seen diminishing returns for this sort of a bug. But maybe there's something out there that I'm just personally not aware of. Uh, I'd love to know more if anybody else knows more. Indeed. 50 through 58, we talked about that it's registered as the uh, web services for secure devices secure port, uh, although we, we do believe that has to do with the Hajime botnet at this point. And you can see over the last few weeks, that same sort of 
wavy ripple pattern of like, maybe it's a daily cycle or a couple botnets on a, a slightly different shift. Uh, but they're overall, they're, they've been going down over the last few days. And right now, I'd say we're about, I'm eyeballing this, I'm going to say about 30,000 sources. And mostly in the U.S., I see. Yep. Most of the scan sources, again, are this, this Hajime botnet, which is made up primarily of IoT devices. Okay. I don't think there's any fewer IoT devices on the network, so. IoT has taken over a lot of the internet, and I think the port scans that we're seeing in the weather report really underscore that point. And so the, the last port that I've got here is not in the top, but I was taking a look at the alarms that we've got. So we can see, we usually do like a baseline for most of the interesting ports, and then if anything changes, we call it to our attention. And this one I thought was pretty significant. I mean, this is 5900 TCP. This is usually used for VNC. Back in, I want to say, about 150 days ago, that was only about 100 scan sources from our perspective were actually scanning for this port. And in the last, I want to say, 30 days, 15 days even, you've got a huge spike. I'm kind of interested in seeing what happens with the VNC scanning. That was something that I sort of found by accident. I may never find out why that's occurring, you know, but you know, I can do my best to try and come up with possible explanations for that behavior. There's no new VNC bugs that I'm currently aware of. Maybe somebody became aware of some popular VNC software that uses a, a default username and password and they're trying it everywhere they can. Yeah. I mean, that, that might make sense in the absence of a bug. But it wouldn't be the first time we've seen interesting behavior without an explanation and then maybe a week, a month down the road, something comes out that, oh, by the way, there, there was a bug after all or there was a concerted effort by some particular actor yep. after all that explains it. And that shows kind of the value of you know, maintaining this data, being able to do this kind of analytics. I mean, something interesting has happened here. I hope we'll someday be able to find out. Sometimes I kind of in my uh, imagination think there's some sort of you know, cyber crime you know, boss that saw VNC for the first time and he said, you guys start scanning for that, that's really important. Um, or maybe there was some new IoT device or, or something else uh, that exposed VNC, but somebody actually took a significant interest in it recently. Oh, yeah. So. so yeah, I'd like to see where that goes. And that's all for the internet weather. It's always uh, fun, interesting um, to have Ed on the show. Getting a perspective from some of the folks that are outside of, of AT&T is, is a great thing. He's been on the show several times. He's always a great guy to talk to, not only while we're filming, but the time you know off camera and before when we're preparing, just all the things that he has to talk about. I really enjoy talking with Ed, and I hope we can have him back again soon. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.